We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, page 961. If you are using a Bible that's provided for you, be really beneficial if you have an open Bible or on your device you have an open Bible, so to speak. We must cling to what truly matters. That's what we've been talking about throughout this entire book. In chapter 15, specifically what truly matters is the basic fundamental reality that the gospel is a hope-filled message that produces hope-filled people. So therefore, we have to be on guard because our hope Not the reality of the gospel, but the sense of our objective hope in the gospel can be taken away. We start to lose sight of the gospel. We start to live gospel-less lives, if that's a word. We have to be on guard. And last week in verses 12 to 19, as we began this, this section, this paragraph... That's what we looked at, the reality, the second reality of the hope of the gospel, that the hope of the gospel is not only centered in Christ, verses 1 to 11, but the hope of the gospel is under attack. The hope of the gospel is under attack. Began last week by giving a few examples or mentioning uh, that the gospel can be under attack both internally and externally. And we have to be on guard both internally and externally. You may say, how is the gospel, the hope of the gospel on under attack? What are some examples of an internal way the gospel's under attack, an external way? I think we're more prone to to be aware of the external attacks of the hope of the gospel. So for instance, you think of culture itself. Culture says to have a true sense of of worth that there's this idealized image of what worldly importance and prominence looks like. The culture gives us a sense of what kingdom building looks like and it's totally different than what the scripture says is the kingdom that we should be seeking for. We often find attacks of the gospel not only in the culture around us, but in our entertainment. We find attacks of the, go- uh, 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 of the gospel in the relationships that we m- many times have. Those friends, those co-workers, that boyfriend, that girlfriend that we know does not draw us to Christ, but draws us away from Christ. We can sometimes get caught up in in politics. We can get caught up in all sorts of culturally relevant things. But if we truly were honest with ourselves, we would say, you know what? Those things are starting to drive me away from my true hope. They're not pointing me to Christ. The book of Ephesians talks about this world system. In this current world system, the Bible says, is under the prince, it's under the control of the prince of the power of the air. We have to be careful. But sometimes more carefully 
and more cunningly, there are internal attacks to the gospel, are there not? Did you know that we all have an inner lawyer within us, whether we realize it or not? You don't have to go to law school to have this inner lawyer within you. And the inner lawyer is doing one of two things in your life. The inner lawyer is constantly either the prosecutor or the defense lawyer. Many times that inner lawyer gives us a false sense of self-righteousness. Well, you know what? I'm okay. I'm checking these things off the list. Uh, I'm okay according to my own standards. So I don't have anything to worry about. Or on the opposite end, we can have the prosecutor lawyer that speaks into our minds and speaks a word of self-condemnation. That because we are not measuring up again to these internal standards that we feel, that we are under the guilt of self-condemnation. You know what the problem with both of those lawyers are? That inner voice that can either be prosecutor or defender? It's that it's trying to find a level of satisfaction outside the person of Jesus. It's trying to find a level of satisfaction based on human standards. We can have the internal attack of the gospel in our sense of self-dependence. That we're okay, that, that we can go it alone. We can have an internal sense attack on the gospel in the lack of faith in our hearts. Our desire to live by sight, by feelings, by being motivated by fear, all of these things are attacks on the gospel that we deal with every single day of our lives. If the gospel is indeed, as Paul says, our only hope, shouldn't we guard it? I was thinking this past week, we, we guard our most treasures, treasured possessions, don't we? Think about those of you with guns. Where do you keep your guns? I mean, I've seen some really nice gun safes. I'm like, man, you could put a body in there. <laughs> and, you know, there's a protection. There's a practical protection. You know, you keep it safe from, from the kids or the grandkids, but also, man, if somebody's going to steal my guns, they're going to have to take that whole thing. And unless they're really prepared to lug that whole case, my guns are protected. Why? Because they are worth a lot to you. Or what about jewelry? You know, some of you maybe have a, a lock jewelry case or a special place you put your jewelry. Never put it in the top drawer. That's the first place burglars will look, right? We, what do we do with our houses? Maybe not so much here. Maybe you do. Uh, but if you live closer to cities, uh, you install house alarms to keep your most valuable possessions safe. 
In fact, nowadays, they even have the house alarms where if there's a sense of movement, you can get the app, and then all of a sudden it notifies you, and you can look at your cameras on your phone. We have insurance plans for lost or stolen goods. All of these are measures that are taken to ensure that what is treasured will be preserved, will be kept safe. Well, I wonder how much more should we be on guard concerning the uniqueness or the special place that the gospel holds in our hearts? How much more must we be on guard that the gospel have center priority in the life of our church? In fact, in Matthew 13, 44, what's the example of the truth of the gospel that Jesus himself gives? He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. What did this individual do when he discovers this this hidden treasure in the field? Man, he looks to the right, he looks to the left, and he, and he re-puts dirt in the hole where that treasure is found. He hides it, he keeps it safe, and he risks everything. He gives every single thing that he has to own the field, not because of the worth of the field, but because of the worth of what's in the field. That is how we are to view the gospel And we have seen so far, and we'll continue to see in verses 12 to 19, how the hope of the gospel is in danger of being lost in the Corinthian church by false teaching. And this was, as we talked about last week, we're going to talk more about, this was a backdoor move that did not directly deny Christ's resurrection. But if this false teaching would be taken to its logical conclusion, it would directly negate the reality of the gospel. It was indeed an attack on Christ, even though it didn't seem to be. The gospel is under attack. We began to look at verses 12 to 15 last week, that if the gospel is under attack, We must guard our hearts in the truth. Guard your heart. Guard your heart and the prominence of Christ in your life in a greater way that you would guard your guns or your cash or your jewelry or your house. All of those things, as Jesus said, are going to corrode away. The, the rust is going to destroy it. The moths are going to come in. But the gospel is eternal. How do we guard our hearts in the truth? Just quickly by way of review, we see the warning in verse 12 that there's a discrepancy between the purity of the gospel message and, and the belief of some within the church. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? There's a discrepancy. Again, they didn't say that Christ was not raised from the dead, but they said there's no resurrection of the saints. What this really was, Paul brings out, is a diminishing of Christ. 
How is it a diminishing of Christ, this false teaching? This same teaching that though it may not deal with the resurrection, we can diminish Christ in so many ways in our lives? Well, in the case of the Corinthian church, verse 13, it was a denial of the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised. So Paul is saying, if you are going to believe that there's no resurrection of those who put their faith in Christ, then one plus one is going to equal two. That means that Christ himself wasn't raised. And again, this was a backdoor tactic of the devil to diminish Christ. Did you know, and and this has been emphasized to me, even this morning reading over this text uh, prayerfully, that it is so easy to diminish Christ. When When we look at even our common everyday fears and worries in life, what are we kind of saying about those things? This is too much to place in the hands of my Lord. You know what? I truly can't give Christ this. You know what? I need to do this in the energy of self. And what does Paul say in Romans 8? That the one who died for us, if he has given us If God has given us his only son, will he not also freely give us all things? So if we take to to the logical conclusion our everyday struggles of worry, of fear, of doubt, of all of those things, what are we saying? That we are placing those things above the reality of Christ's finished work on the cross for us. Now we would never admit that, right? But taken to its logical conclusion, that is what we are believing. Do you see how easy it is and how prone we are to get off track from the gospel? We're going to continue to see how this false teaching is a diminishing of Christ. I want you to look at verse 14. It says, and if Christ has not been raised... So Paul is, is, is taking the, the truth of, of what the, the false teachers are saying, and he's just unraveling it, saying, if this, then this, then this, then this, and he's going in deeper levels. So the first level is in verse 13. If, if there's no, resur- no resurrection of the dead, then that means Christ hasn't been raised. Now let's go to the next level, verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So there's the next level. There's where it really hits home. What do we see? What's the second avenue of a diminishing of Christ? It's Christless preaching and Christless faith. Verse 14 says, If Christ has not been raised... This would be a direct contradiction to what Paul said is the very message of the gospel in verses 3 to 5. What did he say? Verse 3, 
I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. So there's his death. Um, That he was buried. The burial proves his death. That he was raised on the third day. There you have his resurrection and that he appeared. There's the proof of his resurrection. So in taking out a part of the gospel, you have no gospel at all. And that's what we have to first realize. It's either the whole gospel or it's no gospel. Do we realize that in our life? Do we realize that here in our church? You can't pick and choose what parts of the gospel you're going to cling to. You can't pick and choose what part of Christ will be sufficient for which part of your life. You can't pick and choose, am I going to follow Christ in this area of my life, but not this area? It's either the whole gospel or it's no gospel. If it's part gospel, Paul says the result is emptiness or futility or vanity. And you know, that is exactly what gospel preaching is to our world. That is exactly what gospel preaching and your belief in Christ is in today's culture. If you want to turn, you can just listen to me or turn for yourself. Uh, In chapter 1, verse 21, Paul talking about The preaching of the gospel, what does it say? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Listen, the gospel message is folly, it is vanity, it is vain, it's empty. If you are going to listen to culture. So guess what? If you are a Christian that is simply living according to the culture of this world, number one, I would have to say, are you a Christian? And number two, what you are going to be doing is you are going to be completely deviating from the truth of the gospel. Because what you hold as a follower of Jesus is utter foolishness to this world. You can't march to two drum beats. You can't wear a Confederate shirt and Yankee pants. What's going to happen? You're going to get shot at from both sides. In chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, And my speech and my message, or that word is the same word in chapter 15 of preaching, they were not implausible words of wisdom. In other words, the wisdom of this world. But they were in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Folks, it's either the whole gospel or no gospel. That simple song we learn as kids, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. It's exactly what we're talking about. Not only 
Must we come to the reality, man, we've got to either place our faith in the whole gospel or no gospel. We have to face the reality as well that it is faith in Christ or it is faith in nothing. If what the scriptures say is true, then it's either faith in Christ or faith in absolutely nothing. If Christ is not raised, then our preaching is in vain. So Paul's basically saying, everything that I'm doing is for nothing. And Paul is then saying, and everything you claim to believe is nothing. It's just a waste of time. What, what faith, what kind of faith is he talking about? It's faith in the fullness of who Christ is and the fullness of what he has done. It is a finished work. We serve not just a crucified, but a risen Savior. And that risen Savior, if he is indeed at the right hand of God today, he is both interceding for you, he is praying for you before the Father's throne. Can you imagine that? I would love to hear those prayers. He's interceding for you. And he stands as a testimony that he will be faithful to you from start to finish, no matter what. Isn't that hard to believe? The, especially with the various circumstances that many of you have encountered in life. That is true faith. Paul says we walk by faith, not by what? sight you see faith for faith's sake is nothing the cultural message of as long as you have faith you can have faith in any number of things as long as it works for you that's great that's not biblical the object of faith of your faith is what makes faith valid it's not about whether you have faith or not. It's about what you're putting your faith in. And I would say, even as Christians, that we are most prone to put our faith in ourselves, in our own understanding, in our own logic, in our own viewpoints, in our own opinions, in our feelings, even in our fears. And what are we doing? We are walking around and we're singing songs like we sang today. And yet we are living as gospel-less, faithless people. And I'm preaching to myself just as much as I am to you. And, 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 and I don't say this to shame you or to shame me, but to wake us up to the greater reality to what we've been called to. Amen? Well, there's another reality if we are going to diminish Christ in our lives. And that reality is found in verse 15. Paul again peels another layer back. So if Christ is not raised, or if, if, if uh, the saints will not be raised... Then Christ does not be raised, is not raised. That's the foundational, uh, um, foundational realm. And then 
We realize that the preaching of the cross and our very faith is in vain. Then the next level, verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. So if we are going to diminish Christ, in the case of the Corinthian church, that means a denial of his resurrection. In our lives, that can mean a denial of him in any number of ways. It will then mean that we are following a Christless preaching, a Christless faith. It's not the preacher that preaches most to you. It's, it's, again, it's that inner voice that you're hearing 24-7 and that you're instilling it with what you meditate on and, and what you're watching and what you're listening to. And then what happens is you have a very, a, 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 a very misrepresentation of God himself. Listen, a God who left Christ in the grave is a limited God. A God who left Christ in the grave is an uncaring God. It was God himself who sent his son into the world. And it would be God himself who would raise Christ from the dead. That's what Paul says, or Peter says in his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2. He says, God raised him up, loosening the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Why was it not possible for Christ to be held by the pains of death, those very pains that he took for us? Well, number one, we know God's character, that God had set out, had covenantally set out to do this, and he would be true to his character. But number two, the whole thing that, the whole message that Peter is saying is that the very scriptures themselves from the very beginning all point to Jesus' resurrection. And Peter is quoting from the Old Testament. He's saying it is not possible for Christ to be held by death because all of Scripture says that he will not be. Are we listening to our view of God according to what Scripture points us to or according to what we think? Or what we have conjured up in our minds? You see, a God who left Christ in the grave is a limited God. He's an uncaring God. And this type of God who is limited or uncaring is a counterfeit God. It's not the true God. In fact, when Paul says in verse 15, we are found to be misrepresenting God, another way that you could translate that word is we are found to be false witnesses about God. Pseudo-martis. Martis is, is a, a witness, you, a martyr. One who is a witness to what they are holding to. They die for their faith. Pseudo, false. A false witness. So Paul says, we can't, you shouldn't believe anything that we say about God. Everything that we have taught you 
If you diminish Christ, then that means you cannot believe a single thing that we have said about God. We ourselves are false witnesses. Why would they be false witnesses? Because we testified about God that he raised Christ. As we talk about false witnesses, false truth, can I ask you, who's the great deceiver? It's Satan, right? He's the great deceiver. He's the accuser of the brothers. What did Jesus himself say about Satan? In John 8, if you're in a connection group, you'll have time to discuss this passage. It says, he was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth. So, so there, there you go, right there. Satan does not stand in the truth. Why? Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. You want to go down that road? Do you want to listen to the lies of the enemy? Do you want to listen to these outside voices that go completely against what Scripture says? When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he's a liar and the father of lies. A couple weeks ago when we had our, our, our members meeting, we, we partook of the Lord's Supper, and, and I was reading from from the book of Hebrews, and I, was having, I had devotions in it that morning. And what does it say about God? Hebrews, and, and, and my mind went blank on the chapter. I think it might be chapter 6. In contrast to the liar who speaks out of his own character, it says God, with whom it is impossible for him to lie, he made a promise and to secure, to show how much he would keep that promise, what did he do? He swore an oath. And it says, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. His own character. Whose character are you going to listen to? Are you going to listen to the character of the one and only true God? And we have his preserved word for us, or are we going to go to something else to try to find truth? And just like we talked about last week, the tricky thing about Satan is he often makes his lies sound very good, doesn't he? Remember the garden? Talked about that last week? It was a very cunning, sly move. It was even a lie mixed with truth that God did forbid them from taking of that fruit. That God was holding something back from them, something that they should not have. And yet Satan, Satan twists truth to deceive. How may Satan be twisting truth in your life and you are living in a defeated way? Your mind is on self. It's not on him. You are living for self. 
not for the kingdom to come. Satan is a deceiver. He speaks out of his own character. And what is he? He is a murderer. Oh, how we must be so careful. So we must be on guard because the gospel is under attack. How must we be on guard? We must guard our hearts in the truth, verses 13 to 15. I want to give you a second point under this reality that the gospel, the hope of the gospel is under attack. Not only must we guard our hearts in the truth, but we must evaluate then what we are listening to. Verses 16 to 19. Similar to last week, I have a few questions in unpacking these final verses to ask you and to ponder myself. And it's interesting here because Paul is basically going to pretty much reword what he has already said in verses 13 to 15. So in other words, it's kind of like, you know, somebody that's despondent. Or maybe you think of, of an interaction, maybe you, those of you who are children with, with I was going to say small parents, small, or parents with small children, but maybe even teenagers and above. And they're despondent. You don't know if they're listening. What do you do? You kind of, are you, are you listening to me? And you kind of restate what you just said, only in slightly different language, words, to emphasize the truth. That's what we have. In verses 16 to 19, Paul is really restating what he's already said in verses 13 to 15. The Corinthians need to be woken up. They need to be shaken up. And so do we. So in verse 16, Paul again says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. He's saying, do you get it, Corinthian church? Look how similar that is to verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Paul isn't just repeating himself for repetition's sake. He is getting to an erroneous belief that has crept into the mind and the hearts of some in the church and trying to expose that lie. So the first question, and these are very similar to the questions I gave you last week, but they're, they're worth repeating, and like Paul, maybe rewording a little bit. What is captivating my thinking and beliefs? Obviously, this was a huge problem for the Corinthian church. This is an attack on the very gospel itself. What is continually running through my mind? What am I seeking after? What has built, built up strongholds? We read in the book of 2 Corinthians that there were individuals that began attacking Paul's credibility and Paul's ministry. And they said, don't listen to Paul. Paul walks after the flesh. He is not spirit-driven in his life. Do not listen to him. Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I have verses 4 and 5 that will be on the screen. I'm going to start reading in verse 3. 
Paul, uh, after they say he walks in the flesh, Paul says, though we do walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now get this, it says, we destroy arguments and every lofty or proud opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. What we see here is that there is a physical struggle that can go on, but there is also a spiritual one that we do not see. And we have to be so cautious of those things that start to be arguments, and even arguments that appear to have a sense of godliness to them, but are not according to Scripture. All of those proud thoughts, those proud opinions that go against the character and the truth of God, and we are to take those things captive and say, I am following Christ. So what do the things that we willingly listen to and believe say about the direction that we are headed in life? What is captivating my thinking and beliefs? We cannot serve Christ and serve ourselves at the same time. Verse 16, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. They can't hold to this popular cultural belief, as we talked about last week, the resurrection of the dead in Roman culture was considered ridiculous. We can't hold our own thoughts and opinions and claim to be obeying Christ. But then we see also in verses 17 and 18, and if Christ has not been raised, again, that, that logical argument Paul's making, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Verse 17 sure does sound a lot like verse 14, doesn't it? So here's what I want to ask you, secondly. Not only what is captivating your thinking, my thinking, and beliefs, but are my thoughts, are your thoughts and beliefs grounding me in Christ or in something or someone else? I mean, that's how you can even answer the question of 2 Corinthians 10. What is building itself up against the knowledge of God? Are my thoughts and opinions and views, are they grounding me? In Christ or in something or someone else. Again, verse 17 shows us, just like we talked about earlier, a Christless faith is a futile faith. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. But he ups the ante in what he already says in verse 14. Now he spells it out for the church even clearer. Not only is your faith futile, but it says you are still in your sins. 
You see, a Christless faith is a futile faith. And also, an insufficient Savior means we are left in our sins. The next time we let worry, concern, dominate our lives and thinking, you know what we need to tell ourselves? I am diminishing Christ right now and I am living as if I am still left in my sins. I am living and I am thinking in an utter denial of the truth of what Jesus has done for me. Again, it may not, we may know theologically that that is not the case, but our practical life is literally saying that we serve an insufficient Savior and we are living as if we have been left in our sins. You see, the, the lack of confidence, the lack of faith that we put on Christ, it, it, it's incomprehensively inconsistent with what He has already accomplished on our behalf incomprehensively inconsistent. And then verse 18. We're left in our sins, and what's the, what's the reality then? Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So he's, Paul's talking to, to living people, Right? So he's saying, if there is no resurrection from the dead, and these brothers and sisters that have already died, if they are not raised from the dead, not only are you left in your sins, but those who have fallen asleep, they're gone, man. They're perished. They're destroyed. It's hopeless. They are forever in hell. You see, a non-victorious Savior means that this life is all there is to live. And Paul's going to emphasize that in the next paragraph that we're going to look at next week. Those, the very language here is inconsistent. Paul uh, consistently uses falling asleep to describe the death of the saints. Why are they simply falling asleep? Because this is a temporary period of time. They will be raised again. Isn't that a comfort to those of us who have lost loved ones? A spouse, a sibling, a parent? That this is not the end? But if this false teaching runs its course to its logical conclusion, then man, they're, they're hopeless too, not just yourself. Do you see how every facet of life ultimately ties in to what we are believing or not believing about Christ? Do you see how we segment the religious and the secular, when really the one has everything to do with the other. It doesn't matter, man, 
what we're doing. We are to do all things to the glory of Christ, and we are to be living Christ-centered lives, whether we're going bowling. Yesterday, I went with the youth group. We were axe-throwing. I had to be careful. I was, Devin was in my group. and <laughs> Did you know you can even do that to the glory of God by, by acknowledging He is the one that you are living for and breathing and moving for? The gospel and our belief in who Jesus is and what he has done affects every single thing. And we are either placing all of our hope in that gospel or we are living like unbelievers. But then lastly, verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only... So just like the people who've already fallen asleep, that means they're gone. They're under eternal judgment. So if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Third question, are my thoughts and beliefs, are they hope-producing or are they anxiety-driven? If we are living according to the hope that we have, our thoughts will be entirely different. Our perspectives will be entirely different than a life that is Christless and that is driven by anxiety. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What we're basically looking here is at the temporal versus the eternal. Hope in this life only is the grounds for Christless anxiety. What are we doing when we are living in fear and worry and dread? We are living as if there is no Savior. We are living as if there is no hope that we don't know that the story has already been written that God wins that we are participants of a greater kingdom, and if that is true, God is also handling us and our plans in life as well. Do we limit Christ to only be a temporal Savior? Have we forgotten the hope to which we have been called? When you look at suffering in the Bible, it's not that God promises to take away suffering. Paul had a thorn in the flesh that that God said, no, I'm not taking it away. What was the key, though? Paul had the greater hope that even as he is calling me to walk in my suffering, his grace is sufficient. That is thinking with an eternal perspective. Not, Lord, would you just take away this difficulty or trial, but, Lord, would you walk me through it to eternity? Even if it's only an eternity, that that's going to be taken away. The temporal versus the eternal. We also see here a hopeless versus a hope-filled people. Man, isn't it 
crazy that Paul says that we of all people are most to be pitied? I mean, he could have said, well, at least you have hope in this life. You know, you, you, you believe in Christ and, and, and if Christ really, if this really isn't true, at least you've had something to carry you through this life. I mean, that's what a lot of people are holding to. They're holding to, I just need something to carry me through this life. The aches and the pains and the pressures and the emotional uh, torments of this life. If I can just get something to hold to carry me through it. Man, if that's all that Christianity is, Paul, Paul doesn't say we're to be pitied. We're to, of all people to be pitied because we are placing all of our eggs in one basket. This is a contrast of two conditions. A hope-filled people that are centered in Christ or a hopeless people that are diminishing Christ. So as we look at these two options, in which state are we going to live? A temporal mindset is inconsistent with our new nature and our calling. An eternal mindset is grounded in the reality not of what you think, but of what Scripture says is true. So as we once again conclude this section, we see that we must cling to what truly matters. What truly matters is not that your fear or concern is going to happen or not happen tomorrow. What truly matters is that we serve a resurrected Christ who is on the throne at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us and working all things together for good. Have you forgotten that in your life? 